This is Echozoi Radio, episode 138 for October 2019, with Jim Osman on Spiritual Warfare. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. Jim Osman is pastor of Kootenai Community Church in Kootenai, Idaho, and author of several books, including Truth or Territory, which is the basis for the discussion today. Truth or Territory walks the reader through the unbiblical teachings so prevalent today regarding spiritual warfare and points us back to a biblical understanding of our battle with deception in the spiritual realm. Show notes for this episode are available. You'll find a basic outline of the discussion and links to additional resources. You can find that at echozoe.com slash 138. There's a video version of the show also available if you prefer to watch. You can find that at Echozoe Ministries' YouTube page or at echozoe.com slash 138. I do need to point out that we've had some audio and video sync issues for the entire interview. Uh, I, did, I was able to clean it up a little bit in production, but um, it's, it's pretty apparent. And if seeing video that's not aligned with audio and it drives you nuts, Uh, Maybe skip the video this month, but it is available if you're so inclined. Finally, before we begin, a reminder that you can get email alerts of new episodes because the most popular social media platforms are aggressively censoring uh, both politically conservative and uh, Christian accounts, uh, biblically Christian accounts. Uh, They can't really be counted on to be around when we need them. So if you want to sign up at the website to receive an email alert when new episodes are posted, in case Twitter or Facebook hide our posts or ban our accounts, uh, that's available too. So you can sign up at the website, just hover your, hover your mouse over the podcast link up at the top and select email alerts in the drop-down menu. And with that, here's my discussion with Jim. Jim Osman, it's such a pleasure to have you join me for the October episode of Echozoi Radio. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Before we came on the podcast, after you I, I, we mentioned we'd be getting together, I thought, well, I should probably go online and do a little research on the podcast and see who you've had on there. And I was a bit disappointed to see that you've had Andrew Rappaport on there. Yeah. But you kind of redeemed yourself by having Nate Pickowitz on there. And I thought, well, you know, <laughs> can't, can't judge a guy's podcast by every guest they've had on there. Yeah, that's true. Well, I might not always pick the best guests, but I do have good topics, and they're usually pretty strong on the topic. So yeah, well, sometimes think what you will know, about Andrew. At least he's strong about he's strong on the topics. So yeah, uh, I guess. And of course, we're jesting because we're both friends of Andrew, and and uh, so don't don't let don't let Jim throw you off there. We're not <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're we're joking and jest and and in love. <laughs> but um, yeah, we've got. Apparently, we've got several mutual friends. It was Fred Butler that suggested that I take a look at your book. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, your uh, church is with Justin Peters. Uh, another, 
I've had Justin on a few times in the past. And yep, yeah, Justin's a good man. Love Justin. Done a lot of work with Justin. Yeah. Well, and there's a little work as with Andrew Rappaport, but a lot of work with Justin. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the the topic that we're going to discuss tonight fits right in with what Justin is known for too. Yeah. So, um, before we get to that, let's let's talk a little bit about your ministry. You're a pastor in uh, in Idaho, and uh, yeah, I pastor a church, a small church in rural North Idaho, up in the Idaho Panhandle, about an hour south of the U.S. Canadian border. And uh, I've been pastoring since 1996. I started when I was 24 years old in a church wow. where the youth group started at about 60 or 65 years old, and <laughs> it just went up from so had a lot of elderly, gray-haired folks that that I loved and, and served and and met some of whom are still considered to be close friends and love them dearly. And uh, and now we've uh, kind of uh, grown over the course of the years, and our congregation has changed a lot. And uh, one thing that hasn't changed is the name of the church and, and where we're at. We're in Kootenai, Idaho, just outside of Sandpoint in beautiful North Idaho. And it's a fantastic church, fantastic group of people. I love to death. Awesome. So I, we were talking a little before we started that the, the video is a little out of sync. So if you're watching this episode, um, please don't let that bother you. Just, we kind of played with it a little bit, not much we can do about it, but uh, still like to have the video as an option if you're uh, so inclined to, to watch this episode. But uh, Yeah, turn, turn your eyes away and just listen. I don't really have a face <laughs> for video either. I work really good with the audio. Well, and then the worst of it is that I like to have it mostly on the guest. You know, I just want to ask a question and let you talk. I don't want to be the star of the show so right they get to look at your video most of the time <laughs> but uh so the the book is on is, is called truth or territory and it's on uh spiritual warfare yeah uh what prompted what 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 led you to want to write a book on this subject uh well there was a, a couple of different things when i was in bible college um and i went to bible college i didn't grow up in a christian family but when i went to bible college it was a college of um a very eclectic blend of, of students and so i was exposed to a lot of um a lot of things that were called christian but were not necessarily biblical or doctrinally sound um you show up at college and, and a lot of the con- a lot of the uh, student body was you know, evangelical Mennonites or Mennonites, and some of them were liberal, some of them were charismatic, some of them Baptists, some E-free, some non-denominational. I happen to have been non-denominational. And sitting around at the dorm, you're exposed to all kinds of different, sometimes wacky theology. You sit around and discuss things. And then I picked up as a brand new believer, I was trying to pick up things that people were saying, like binding Satan and praying hedges of thorns and uh, generational curses and stuff like this. And somebody handed me a tape that kind of laid out all of those approaches to spiritual warfare. And I adopted hook, line, and sinker. I thought all of that was biblical, and that's how spiritual warfare was waged, and that's what true biblical spiritual warfare was. And, mm-hmm. and on this tape, the guy who was teaching, and I don't remember the name of the tape, or I don't remember the name of the teacher, but he spelled out this approach to spiritual warfare as the, the method by which you can evangelize your lost family members. And of course, I didn't grow up in necessarily a church-going family, and I wanted to evangelize them and share the truth, and so I thought this was the way to do it. You know, at first you had to pray a hedge of thorns, and then you had to bind Satan, and then you had to plead the blood, and then you had to cancel generational curses, and then you had to pray over them, ter- pray against territorial spirits, and when you had done all of those things, then you'd kind of paved the way for the gospel and the gospel to be effective. And so I, I, I adopted all of that. And it wasn't until about fourth year Bible college or third year Bible college when I was finally exposed to a book called A Holy Rebellion by Thomas Ice and Robert Dean Jr. that kind of challenged a lot of those presuppositions and doctrines. And 
I read the book and I reread the book and I thought, man, this a lot of this stuff just is not biblical at all. And I kind of started to jettison a lot of that false doctrine. And then uh, when I went back to fourth year Bible college, uh, it was the professor in fourth year that actually had uh, brought the book into the student body and had exposed a lot of us to that sound sound doctrine, sound theology, that these practices of binding and generational curses and hexes and praying hedges of thorns and all that stuff is not biblical. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was in fourth year, I had kind of kind of gotten rid of all of that stuff and and one of the one of the uh, assignments in my fourth year of college was to write an essay on spiritual warfare and I, I swear to you my essay was the longest one that was written on that subject I mean I just I unloaded on all of those false practices and I wrote I don't know I think it was 40 or 50 pages it was three or wow. four times what was necessary to pass the class and then when I got out of Bible college and started pastoring, I had people start asking me questions. What about generational curses? And what about binding Satan? Are these things biblical? And I would just give them my essay that I had written for Bible college. And then I, I thought I should write a series of articles for our church newsletter to kind of go through this. And so I did. I wrote 16 part series for our church newsletter, a couple thousand words each, just kind of dealing with each of these subjects. And then, uh, in the meantime, after several years, we after several years after those articles came out in our newsletter, they we posted them to the website, and they were one of the most downloaded series of articles that we had on our website. Mm-hmm. So, while we were in the middle of a building program, I thought I should write a book. I should write. You could just make it a Kindle book, and I'll put it up on Amazon and see if it sells. And there's obviously interest because a lot of people are downloading those series on our website. Yep. Obviously, interest, so it might sell well, and all the proceeds can go to our building fund because we were in the process of building a new building. We're doing it debt free. So that's how I put it up on Kindle, and uh, then I was exposed to print-on-demand with CreateSpace, and so I created a print version, so it's available in print and Kindle, and all the proceeds for the book go to the ministry of Kootenai Community Church. I don't make any money off of it, and I don't say that to you know be prideful or anything. I just say that so that people don't think I'm trying to, try to plug my book so that I can buy a private jet or something here in Justin. So I... Uh, that's how I wrote the book. Um, I wrote the book in hopes that it would be expose people to a correction on some of that false doctrine. And I took this series of articles and I basically expanded them and went into greater detail and researched a lot of these guys and their their, policy, their uh, practices and and then started to really work at a, at a tight, reasoned, biblical approach to refuting those doctrines. So that's how I came to write the book. And, and it has sold well and it's been well received and I'm thankful for it. Yeah. Well, um, I, I can really relate because I have a, you know, kind of similar experience. You know, I was saved in college about my third year of college and um, got in with a group of other Christians and um, they, some of them were thick into some of the same stuff. Some of the very stuff you wrote about in the book with Neil Anderson and, you know, stuff like the bondage breaker and uh, renouncing generational curses and stuff. We'll get into that more as we, as we get into the discussion, but um Totally, totally can understand and relate. Yeah. And then uh, my yeah, I wish that was wish that that was all the false doctrine I was exposed to in Bible <laughs> college. But yeah, and uh, it's yeah. Uh, then uh, I now I've sit under the teaching of Bob DeWay, and you know Bob's been one of my most frequent guests, but. Um, Bob is uh, big on on some of the same kind of stuff and uh, his CIC ministry uh, newsletter, a lot of the same types of things. And getting he 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 talks all the time about what his probably his most frequent email is. I've got a demon. How do I get rid of it? And all based on an article he wrote years and years ago. Yeah, 
that's sad. Yeah. A lot of people struggle with some of these practices and, and uh, theologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, maybe we'll just jump in and, and start off with, I was just going to use kind of the book as an outline of our, for okay. how we can talk, but um, you start off talking about intelligence and, and, and the intelligence in the kind of the warfare meaning of the word. And, um, yeah, I, um, I break spiritual work that warfare down into two possible approaches. That's either, and this comes back to the title of the book, truth or territory. We're either fighting a battle for truth or we're fighting a battle over territory. And by the territorial approach is what you get with Neil T. Anderson and, um, a lot of the other false teachers in spiritual warfare, where they, they basically are suggesting that we need to claim back territory that Satan has taken. And that territory might be a child or a house or a hotel room or uh, some other some other physical area, you know, your church area, your church grounds, your city, a territory that we need to claim. And I contend that true spiritual, biblical spiritual warfare is a battle for the truth, that we are, in fact, engaged in a truth war, uh, not a territory war. Yeah, and in the first part of the book, I lay out the basically the, the necessity of 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 understanding what our source of intelligence is. If we are to fight a war, just like just like ground troops would would before you would go and launch a, a land war, an invasion of some sort, you would want to know what type of forces you're up against. What are the weapons that are going to be crucial? What type of terrain is there? What type of enemy combatants and where are they in, 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 entrenched and what type of weapons do they have and what type of tactics might be? Who is their leadership? Things like that. Our only source of intelligence for fighting the spiritual warfare is scripture. Mm-hmm. And this differentiates the truth approach from the territory approach. The territory approach would say, yes, yeah, scripture is a great source of, of information about fighting the spiritual battle. But we also can glean information from demons that we interview or ex-Satanists or people who have been possessed and been delivered from that. They can tell us about the domain of darkness and what best what best way to, to fight the enemy or to cripple enemy forces, et cetera. And so those are all viewed as equal in authority and equal in uh, reliability as scripture is. And that's where you get into a lot of the bondage breaker and the bondage maker and a lot of experiential theology with some of those other sources. And I contend that the only source of intelligence that we have is what's God's given to us in his word. And that our view of Binding and rebuking and generational curses and hexes and all that stuff needs to be constrained by the clear teaching of Scripture, and that Scripture is what uh, Scripture is what tell us tells us who our enemy is, who our enemies are, because we have not only Satan but also the world and the flesh. So we have three enemies. We have a, a threefold force that's coming against us, and Scripture tells us how we can overcome the world and defeat the flesh and resist Satan. And only Scripture can tell us that. And any source of authority that that questions that or goes against it or, or, or conflicts with it must be rejected, including especially the testimony of demons. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's what got me hooked. And it's been a number of years since I read it, but uh, I, John MacArthur's book came to mind as I'm reading through yours yeah. and um, it's called the, the truth war. And it's uh, like I said, it's been a number of years since I read this, but uh, you know, it's, it's so good because the same reason your book is really good. And that's that um, it's pointing people back to scripture. And, and, and that's, that's really the more you, you, you mature and grow in Christ, the more you realize that that's just, that is really all you need. And, 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 and when we're talking about um, there's conferences all the time now, it seems to be a, a, on the sufficiency of scripture. We see uh, yeah. shepherd's conference and, 
And then they'll have their own like just offshoot conferences, one-offs and stuff about the fishing and serious scripture. And there's a reason for it. It's, it's, it's so, it can, it's so easy to lose it in our day and age. Yeah. And you know, MacArthur's got his um, truth matters conference coming up here in a couple of weeks at Grace Community Church, and this year's theme is the sufficiency of Scripture, and it's necessary. And a lot of people, you know, almost anybody who would call themselves an evangelical has to at least give a hat tip to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. But where it breaks down is where the rubber meets the road with that. All evangelicals would say, yeah, we believe Scripture is authoritative, inerrant, inspired, and sufficient. We believe it's sufficient. But then they'll turn right around and believe also the testimony of demons and embrace the teachings of spiritual warfare advocates who get their testimony from private revelation or, or demons or other sources of authority, or they will not trust the sufficiency of Scripture in their own lives for decision-making, and so they believe that they need to hear a voice from God or God needs to reveal to them or speak mm-hmm. to them privately to tell them whether to ma- marry uh, Sue or, or Joanne or wh- which college to attend or which house to buy or which car to buy or what to have for dinner. Um, they don't. They honestly do not believe that Scripture is sufficient for uh, all things pertaining to life and godliness, and that if something isn't addressed in Scripture, they don't need a word from God in order to make those decisions or to to make that call. So it, they would give a hat tip to sufficiency, but but really, the I cannot. I've said this before in my congregation. I cannot think of a single thing that plagues modern evangelicalism that does not come back to in some way a denial practically of the doctrine of sufficiency even though all of those people would affirm the sufficiency of scripture practically in their day-to-day lives and how they how that cashes out in walking with the lord they deny it in its practice and that ends up plaguing evangelicalism you know we, we end up needing the prayer of jabez and yep. then we end up needing 40 days of purpose and then we end up needing a church growth seminar and then we end up needing this conference and and this passion event and 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 a word from the Lord and testimony from demons and spiritual warfare experts and, and everything else. All of that is a practical denial of sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. And I'm part of, part of the get gist of my book was to try and call people back to the sufficiency of scripture. We have enough, we have enough revealed and we have enough in scripture to help us overcome the world, resist the flesh and oppose Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm finding that after 20 years in the Lord that, I mean, that's, that's really a, kind of a fundamental part of the process of sanctification is, is bringing that understanding of the sufficiency of scripture into the day-to-day practice. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not something you just jump in, you know, we might be saved and justified and we understand it, but it's that bringing the understanding along with the practice, you know, is it, it's the tough part. And, you know, that's something I've spent 20 years working on too is, you know, oh yeah, you know, I, every day it seems like I'm, oh yeah, you know, I can trust the, the word of God on this particular issue or that particular issue. And, um, uh, definitely. Uh, so once we get to that realization that we're going to rely on our scripture, how do we start to progress into understanding a, a more biblical view of, uh, spiritual warfare then? Well, in the second part of the book, I, I lay out, um, I basically refute some false practices. So mm-hmm. I deal with um, praying hedges of protection and canceling hexes or generational curses. You know, what does that involve and and why are people involved in that? What is that teaching? Um, I rebuke or, or uh, uh, you know, correct the, the idea that we should be binding Satan, mm-hmm. that that is actually a thing, or that we should be rebuking Satan or praying territorial spirits, kind of an 
a new thing in the 1990s was identifying the, the spirits that held cities in bondage um, and, and praying against them, specifically identifying the spirit's name who was, say, over the city of Los Angeles and praying against them, bring down that territorial, bring down their hold or loosen their grip on the city of Los Angeles. And then and then the gospel could go forth and we could have effective ministry. People would get saved and there would be a revival. That was a big thing in the early 90s. And yeah. Uh, I deal with that in the book, and um, that I think is the most pernicious and most dangerous. And then we deal with things like whether demons can be, whether we should be performing exorcisms, and and is what is that approach to spiritual warfare a territorial approach to spiritual warfare? Is it necessary for a sanctification? I deal with that in the book as well. So you know, once we've come to an understanding of what the sufficiency of Scripture is and what it means, and that we have everything that we need. Then all of a sudden, if we if we really believe that all, and I try then to apply that theology through the rest of the book to all those areas, mm-hmm. we don't need to bind Satan and rebuke Satan and reprove him and plead the blood of Jesus and pray hedges of thorns of protection, because we just need to stand in Scripture and stand in the victory that we have and understand what we have been given in Christ because of what he has done on the cross for us. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm just looking at like your 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 chapters here, and and we talked about the source of of intel and truth or territory, and then um, the enemy and his army. You know, can you describe that? Like, what biblically speaking? I mean, we I think a lot of us are well aware of a lot of the false teaching, but what does the Bible have to say about about that? Well, first of all, who is the enemy? And yeah. Um, the, the, I think I have a couple chapters on the enemy, one on Satan and demons and what their powers are and who they are. Um, it, it, scripture teaches that Satan is a created being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not even a challenge for God. Mm-hmm. It's not like he is a, he, he holds certain claims over territory and, and he's giving a God a run. He's giving our God a run for his money, spiritually speaking. Um, so he is a created being, a created angel who fell, uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe, the fall of Lucifer and revelation talks about him taking a third of the angels with him. So he is a real enemy and we need to take him seriously, but we also need to understand that Jesus Christ on the cross defeated that enemy. He is a defeated enemy. He's a toothless dog who growls and barks and yipes. And yet he would devour us if we're not careful. So we, you know, we need to hold these two things in together that he is a defeated enemy, but he is, he is also a very real danger to an undiscerning, and uncautious Christian in that he can deceive us. He, ro- he ro- roars about like a roaring lion seeking to deceive us. And by deceiving us, he can take us captive and, and we can fall prey to him. But even see that deceiving is not, the deceiving itself indicates that we're involved in a, in a truth war, not a territory war. Right. Because his danger is not that he would possess my building or that he would be in the room with me or that he would, uh, you know, make a claim over my, my acre of land that I live on or over my home or over my car, or over my hotel room, or something like that. The danger is not in him making some claim to territory. The danger is in him deceiving me into believing something that is false. And then that would work its way out in the implications of my, not only my theology, but, you know, how I might shepherd my church, or raise my children, or think of my own sanctification, or how I might approach my pursuit of holiness. It is the deception of the devil that is the, that is the real danger. That is how he devours us not by claiming territory, but by tricking us and deceiving us and blinding us to the truth. And that's why we come back to Scripture as being sufficient and necessary and 
and the very thing that protects us from his deception. So he's a real enemy, he's a dangerous enemy, and he's fighting a truth war, and he is deceiving us, many people, into thinking that they're fighting a territory war. Mm-hmm. And if he can fight a truth war and think you make you think that you're fighting a territory war, you're he's got to be deceived losing. and he will win the battle. Yep. Uh, you talked a little bit about this notion that the false teachers have about Satan having certain legal rights to certain things. Yeah. And and that's part of the battle they engage is trying to figure out what those legal rights were and then and then overcoming them. And I had a hard time with that. And I think I mean just theologically, like where do they get this idea that Satan has any legal rights at all? Or yeah, any or, or anybody who's wicked, any of the, any wicked, any any sinner. I mean, we don't have legal rights in our own, right. you know, as human beings, as sinners, you know, that we're fallen, that we have a legal right to, to certain fallen or sinful activities or, or territories or whatnot. And that's, that's what I was having a hard yeah, time Yeah, and with. when they talk about legal rights, they're not talking about like, um, you know, the U.S. Constitution gives me a legal right or Satan has a legal right in that sense. It, they're talking about some authority that they think that Satan has divested God of. He's taken from God in the fall or in his rebellion. Mm-hmm. As if when he left heaven with a third of the angels, he also seized the Bill of Rights and a few other things that kind of give him, you know, power of attorney over certain things here on earth. And yeah. I'm not, Justin would be able to answer this question better than I would, but I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg in this <laughs> way, but whether it was this charismatic false teaching regarding uh, legal rights that you find in the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith movement, mm-hmm. or whether it, 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 whether that came first and then the whole charismatic idea sort of morphed into, um, into spirit into spiritual warfare into the spiritual warfare arena. I, I don't know, but I do know that they have this in common: this approach to this territory approach to spiritual warfare and the Word of Faith movement. You know, Kenneth Copeland and others in the Word of Faith movement talk about how God failed and Abraham how God failed in the fall and how Satan has seized all of this and God's doing his best to get back on his throne and get back into control. And it really kind of that whole approach to um, Satan having some heavenly legal access or rights to something. It really is a, it's kind of a small view of God. Yeah, it it is. It's very much a very small way as if if God is doing his best to fight an enemy that is every, very much as equal. Yeah. That's well, that's what I'm having problems with this is I, at some, at some level, you got to have the belief that, that God has, has failed, like you said, in some way in order for yeah. Satan to have any yeah. kind of legal right in any place that, uh, I mean, it's part and, of and that see, deception. Think of it, yeah. Think of it in terms of, you know, if, if I have a legal right to something, a claim to something over my neighbor, that means my legal, my neighbor does not have a legal right to that, or he does not have a right to do that. So right. my claim on a piece of property or territory or ability lawfully is a claim that my neighbor does not have the same lawful ability that I do, mm-hmm. um, at least over the same piece of property, the, uh, the same claim. And so, you know, when that comes into the spiritual realm, you basically have people suggesting that Satan can come out and seize something and take control of something and be somewhere and God can't do anything about it. And that then God has to gain that control back by something that we do, whether it's saying a, p- a particular prayer mantra or claiming something for the blood of Jesus or rebuking and binding Satan and taking back that territory against the territory view. Yeah. Um, you know, we got to seize it back for God because God's lost it somehow. and He needs us to say the right words and do the right <laughs> hocus pocus magic stuff in order to get that back. But if your neighbor comes and steals something from you, which is what Satan would, everything he has, he's stolen from God. 
Right. If your neighbor steals from you, what legal right does he have? He may have a possession of it, but that doesn't mean he has a legal right to it. That's, but yeah, you still have right. the legal right to it. And the other issue yeah, I, I have is that it, it, it almost separates God from his role as judge, that now there's got to be some kind of third party judge, which God and Satan would have to go before and appeal to for God to get his legal rights back, which is ludicrous. Yeah, and it, and it suggests that if there's a legal right that Satan has taken, that it suggests that God himself is subject to some code, some legal authority outside or above himself. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, uh... it's a small God. It's not the God <laughs> of the Bible. It is. It's going back to that sufficiency of Scripture. and um, Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about the flesh and, and how... The flesh is 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 an enemy that doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, he the flesh really is not an it isn't that's a good way of saying it. He's an enemy that doesn't get enough credit because while Christians think that in fighting spiritual warfare, they're waging war against the forces of darkness, Satan and his demons and his hordes of enemies, etc. They're really losing we are really losing the battle against the world and the flesh. And mm-hmm. and in the book I point out there are three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And oftentimes Christians think about spiritual warfare in terms of the devil, and, and that's appropriate. He is an enemy that we have to reckon with. But we need to remember that the bulk of the New Testament teaching is not about Satan. You read through the epistles, and the bulk of what the epistles teach the Christian is not about how to bind Satan or exercise Satan or rebuke him or reprove him or plead the blood of Jesus over him or cast him out or anything like that. The bulk of the teaching of the New Testament is re, is toward the Christian in terms of his sanctification, toward the Christian in his battle against the flesh. So you, you and I could probably recite a dozen chapters off the top of our heads that would have to do with this, you know, the, uh, that deals with sanctification. Philippians 2 deals with it. Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with that subject of sanctification. Now that we're justified, shall we live in sin now that we've been freely, freely justified by grace, etc.? Well, no, there's a, there's a process of sanctification that's going on, and those massive passages that talk about us working out our own salvation with fear and trembling and and living in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, Ephesians 4, and what that looks like, and putting off the old man, putting on the new man, Colossians 3, and Romans 6, 7, and 8, and Galatians, not living in bondage to sin anymore in the deeds of the flesh, but walking in the Spirit. Chapter after chapter of the New Testament talks about this battle that we have against the flesh in, in one way or another, using one analogy or another. There's a just a an abundance of teaching on that subject. Why is that? Because the flesh is the Christian's number one enemy. It's the enemy within, right? It's what we have to live with each and every day. We wake up with it and each and every day we go to bed with it and we fight it. We must mortify it all day long, every day. And it is our, the flesh is our number one enemy. The world is outside of us. The devil is outside of us. The flesh is right there with us and dwells with us. And we got to go to war against it. So it's not uncommon to see a lot of these teachers who, while they're binding Satan, they're also sleeping with their secretary. Or while they're rebuking and reproving and using the blood of Jesus and claiming territory, uh, they're also failing morally in some horrible aspect. They, they, they're drunkards or they're liars or they're swindlers and or they're having an affair or they're looking at pornography on the Internet. They are losing the war against the flesh because most Christians do not even recognize the flesh as an enemy. So that, and if they don't know it's an enemy and they don't see it as an enemy, they're not going to battle it correctly. They're not going to, they're not going to go to war against it and try and mortify it like they should. Because they, they don't, they don't, and, and that's what we do with the flesh. We're to mortify it, put it to death. 
the deeds of the flesh. You know, mm -hmm. That's what Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. We are to strangle it, to, to starve it to death, to kill it, to go to war against it, to battle it, to slay it. That is what we are to attack. And and then, but then you got Christians who are, you know, they're off doing this with Satan and binding him and rebuking him, and and they're just getting they're just getting beaten to death by the flesh and the world, and adopting worldly thinking. Yeah. So yeah, we have three enemies. Those are the three enemies. Yeah. Well, I was just listening to a, a local uh, secular podcast earlier today, and um, they were talking about the game of lacrosse. You familiar with lacrosse? It's a, yeah, a, a well, I've seen. I've never played or watched any of it. No, a, a fields. It's kind of a field sport. Uh, it was a game that was developed by the Native Americans, and a really interesting story was that in the 1760s, the English had a fort on Mackinac Island in Michigan, and the Indians overthrew it. And the way they overthrew it was they invited these two. Try two different tribal groups invited the English out to watch them play a game of lacrosse. And while the English were all enthralled by, oh, this is an interesting game and they're watching this thing, all the buddies went around behind them and oh, it took over the fort. And uh, I, I, I bring this up because I think that's kind of what's going on with this war between the, the, the devil and the flesh is that our real war is with the flesh and he's out there kind of playing this game of lacrosse getting us distracted so the flesh can come behind us and overthrow. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it ends up just yeah. being a major distraction. Yeah. We, we end up having to fight a three front war and without scriptures, our guide, we're never going to, we're never going to be successful in that three front war. And that's why I said earlier, we, we need to overcome the world, which means to resist and to not be held captive by its devices, you know, have our minds renewed rather than being worldly. Mm -hmm. We need to, resist and mortify and kill the flesh and go to war with that. And we need to stand strong against the wiles and trickery of the devil. And, and that's how you fight a three front war. We're overcoming the world. We're mortifying the flesh and we're resisting Satan mm -hmm. and standing firm in what Christ has done. That's, that's true biblical spiritual warfare. It's not, not the binding of the hexes <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of that. Um, that's kind of the next section is talking about unbiblical practices with, um, Binding and, like you said, binding and hexes and hedges. And hedges is something I think everybody's heard of. I pray a hedge of yeah. hedge of protection around this person. or Right. And, and I'm not opposed to praying uh, for protection. Sure. But where, where spiritual warfare experts, quote-unquote experts, get off the rails is they, they think that there's some mantra, some spiritual process that goes on when they utter the words, pray a hedge of thorns, as if... You know, something pops up magically in the spiritual realm that keeps Satan from crossing over that hedge of thorns. And, uh, you know, this is fine to play, pray for protection. I do. I have. I will. Um, we, we're asking God to sovereignly protect people in certain situations. But just by uttering the words, I pray a hedge of thorns around, uh, what is a hedge of thorns and and, and uh, what is it supposed to do in the spiritual realm? You know, there's nothing magical about that mantra. Mm -hmm. And there are people who say that as long as you're praying the hedge of thorns, you're actually praying up a hedge of protection around people. Hmm. And do you know where that comes from? What, what is their basis for uh, this? Yeah, typically it's, um, there's, there's a reference in Job chapter one where um, Satan comes in and, and God says, if you consider myself a servant Job and, and Satan says to him, yeah, but you have, you've hedged him around. You put a hedge around him so that I can't touch any of his possessions. 
And there in Job chapter one, the reference to a hedge is just a, it's, it's a way of Satan. Satan is using a way of describing God's protections, basically saying you, you are protected. him. But it's not called the hedge of thorns. It's just, it's just God has put a hedge around him, protected him, as it were, by putting up a wall and, and said to Satan regarding Job, you can't touch him. You can't touch his possessions or his body. And, um, and then the second reference is in uh, Hosea chapter 2, where God, through the prophet Hosea, is actually warning the Israelites that because of their waywardness, their sin, and they were likened to Israel and their rebellion and their idolatry was likened to Hosea's adulterous bride who was constantly chasing after and pursuing all of her various lovers. Um, God says to him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge up for the nation of Israel. I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns, meaning I'm going to hedge you in on every side as if you had a hedge of thorns on both sides so that you will not stray to the right or to the left after your lovers or your idolaters. You're in fact going to walk in my path, in my commandments and in my statutes, and you won't stray away. And so the hedge of thorns in Hosea was an act of judgment. It was God judging them or disciplining them for their waywardness. That's the hedge of thorns in Hosea too. And in Job, it's just a description of God's protection. And there's no indication in either passage that it's something that we can pray, that it mm-hmm. is something that we can put up around people. There's no indication at all. And and I, I've said this before, it's, it's a horrible abuse of scripture to take a passage that describes God's judgment against an adulterous and idolatrous people and use that to teach that we can put something up to protect God's people. And that's how they would twist and distort the idea of a hedge of thorns in Hosea chapter two. Well, it's going back to what we talked about at the very beginning about the sufficiency of scripture. Isn't that just so common that when we, we go off the rails, when we do something wrong or we're believing something wrong or our theology's off kilter, it's because we're, I mean, more often than not, I see that it's because we're taking scripture out of context. We're not looking at the full yeah. context of passages. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a horrible abuse of those passages in their context. You look in the context and you're like, how do they how do they take these two passages and come up with a, this practice of praying ahead of forms? It's mm-hmm. got to be a mystery to anybody who can who can read the Bibles for themselves. Well, and that's the thing is is uh, we don't we don't all have to be you know doctors of theology to to really understand the Bible. I think for so often, if people just would, if you hear a verse that says something that somebody says that it says, just read the context, read the whole chapter of what yeah. where that verse is, and see does it really say that? And yeah. I mean, ninety nine percent of the time that's enough. I mean, you don't need to yeah. have a PhD. It does in... this verse teach this practice? You know, mm-hmm. it does this verse teach this practice? A lot of these practices we pick up because we're around, we're surrounded by Christian vernacular and, and uh, a Christian way of describing these things. And that's how it was for me at Bible college. I just, I, I heard people praying hedges of the thorns and rebuking and reproving Satan and pleading the blood of Jesus over this and over that and claiming this territory and that territory, and praying against spirits and hedges and all of that stuff. And, and you just, it, it, I picked it up by default without even questioning, mm-hmm. are these things really biblical? Like, is this what scripture teaches we're supposed to be doing? But here were all these Christians who had been Christians longer than I had been a Christian, for sure. Yeah, Some of them had grown up in the church and grown up in Christian families. I, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, you know, so then I just embraced or adopted a lot of these ways of thinking without really analyzing them according to scripture or applying 
sound exegesis to the passages that we're often pressed into support to uh, pressed into service to support and and uh, defend those practices. I never just sat and asked, does this passage really teach this, or or are they just using language out of scripture and inventing these practices out of whole cloth? And yeah. that ends up being exactly what was going on. Yeah, I I, I can relate on so many levels. <laughs> You know, I didn't grow up in the church either. And, and, uh, I think you and I have a lot of similar background from what we've talked yeah. about just in the last hour. And, uh, but you know what, some of the best advice I ever got from a teacher that I don't necessarily really agree with anymore, uh, but had some of the best advice when I was start, starting out. And that was, he kept, he was always pointing back to Acts seventeen eleven and searching the scriptures and, um, that combined with reading things in context. I mean, you put those two together, um, you're going to be so much, so much better off. It's. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we talk about hedges. How about hexes? What, what's the. Uh, hexes. Hexes is usually the idea of a generational curse. You know, people uh, quote Exodus 20, where they say, um, um, because of some sin in your bloodline or some, some sin that your ancestors do, that you can be punished in the third mm-hmm. or fourth, fifth generation. Yep. Uh, so because my father was an alcoholic, adulterous uh, um, abuser of uh, people and women uh, and a liar, um, because he did all those sins, there's some demon attached to his bloodline that is an unfortunate descendant of my father. I now am a- have access to that. The demon has access to me and therefore to my children. And so they will say that this idea of generational curses, that there's a hex upon uh, my family, me and my children, because of what my father did, or my grandfather, or my great grandfather, and so they they quote that passage in Exodus where um, God says, "I'll be uh, I'll visit the sins uh, of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generations, but to the one who loves me and obeys my commandments, I will be merciful to the thousandth generation." Yeah, they and, leave that uh, one so out. people abuse that text. What's that? They leave that part out. <laughs> yeah, they do. They they conveniently clip that out because then that would mean that me by my act of obedience to the Lord, that I can secure God's blessing and salvation and favor for a thousand generations. Where, whereas that, that stark contrast there between the third and the fourth generation and the thousand generation should be evidence that what, what Moses is describing is not, um, not any kind of a literal generational, um, curse or blessing, but rather God's willingness to show favor as opposed to his the certainty with which he will judge those who are disobedient. And in the passage, all, and, and this is a, a Hebraism, it's a way of, that the Hebrews use to describe God's graciousness, you know, his, his anger is but for a moment, but his loving kindness lasts for a thousand years or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of that way of saying that, it, it, yeah, God is, God can be wrathful, he can judge sin, and he will to the third or fourth generation, but God is far more willing to, to show grace and compassion and loving kindness to a thousand generations. God would rather... God would rather be compassionate to a thousand generations than judge three or four. That's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. And so it's not describing a literal curse that is placed upon a bloodline. It's just describing God's willingness to visit iniquity. And that is to, you know, and, and the assumption behind that is that if the children follow in the footsteps of their parents, that God will judge the children in the same way that he judges the parents. doesn't matter if that goes on three generations or four generations you know, if, if I follow in the same sins of my father, I'm going to be judged just like my father. And if my children follow in my sins, he's going to be judged just like me and just like my father was or my grandfather was. That's the idea is that if the children continue in the sins of the parents, they're going to be judged and cursed just like their parents were cursed. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think it's Ezekiel 18 where God deals with that issue of, you know, if, if the parents eat, if the parents eat sour grapes or the children's teeth set on edge. And there God lays out in the clearest and starkest uh, terms that no, children are not punished for their parents' sins and parents are not punished for their children's sins. Everybody is punished for their own sins. And Ezekiel has this analogy where he says, say you have a father who is righteous and and uh, he lives a righteous life and obeys the commandments of God. And then he has a son who's a wicked uh, whoremonger or an idolater. Will that son be blessed because his father was righteous? No, Ezekiel says that son will die in his sins and he'll be punished. He'll bear his own iniquity. He's not going to be treated with favor just because his father was a righteous man. Uh, likewise, let's say that son has a uh, another son who turns out to be a righteous man, and his father is a whoremonger and idolater and adulterer and wicked person who doesn't walk in God's commandments. Will God punish the righteous person for the wicked sins of his father? And Ezekiel says, no, God's God will punish each individual for their own sin. And there the whole idea of generational curses and hexes is done away with forever. It's as, it's as clear as day. God says, I will punish each person for their sins. And the righteous I will remember, and the wicked I will remember, and each will bear or be rewarded according to their own deeds. And at the end of that chapter, I think it's at the end of that chapter, God says to the Israelites, you say the way of the Lord is not right. And God says, you're saying to me, it's not right for me to punish the wicked and, and reward the righteous. And then he says to Israel, it's your way that's not right. You think I ought to be punishing children for their parents, and that's not morally right. And God reproves that whole idea. So... That's kind of the misuse of Exodus 20 and the misuse of the idea of generational curses in Exodus. And the answer is in, I believe it's Ezekiel 18. Okay. Yeah, it it's, um, sounds like we're going right back to that false idea of, of Satan having legal rights. That if he can just get yeah. one, that he, you know, that he has a legal right to the second and third after that. Yeah, and, and the idea of hexes also comes in when people suggest that um, you know, if you pick up a, if you adopt a child from a, a land like Haiti or India or someplace like that where there's a lot of idolatry, you never know what demon could be attached to that child yeah. because of the, of the sins of their ancestors that have gone back for generations and generations that you might be bringing unwittingly a demon into your own residence and, and undermining the godliness of your own home. And that demon could then claim territory over your other naturally born kids or over your house or over your church. And so it's this whole voodooistic, superstitious approach to spiritual warfare that is patently unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think you rightly point out like how how horrible that burden is. Then when you're trying to to yeah. to, to show love towards a, a child by adopting him and raising him as your own, and and now you're going to worry about you know some ancestor you're not familiar with and what they might have done. Right. Yeah. Right. What a what a burden. Um, how about binding Satan? Like, I hear this one all the time. I bind you, Satan. Yeah, you do. And even by well-meaning people in otherwise solid evangelical churches, you hear people say, we bind the devil in Jesus' name and keep him out of our church service or keep mm-hmm. him out of our concert or keep him out of our play or keep him out of our houses and homes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, as well-meaning as that is, I used to have a, a good friend who would pray with us every day before the service, every Sunday before the worship service. And every once in a while, he would bind the devil and then just kind of cringe and think, man, <laughs> it's just not biblical. And, and, uh, I, I tolerated it, you know, but, uh, it, it's not a biblical practice. Uh, that comes from uh, three passages of Matthew, Matthew 16 and 18, um, where Jesus talks about binding the strong man, uh, and Matthew 12, I think it's 12, 16 and 18 of memory serves where Jesus talks about binding the strong man. And they take, 
that reference to binding the strongman. So you say, see, therefore, we should be binding Satan. And I don't know what part of the armor of God they think binds him, spiritual handcuffs or rope or what they think we've been given to bind the devil. But um, they think that by uttering that phrase, we bind Satan, that he is somehow handcuffed or kept from influencing or affecting people or going somewhere or being part of something or deceiving somebody or, or whatever. And uh, those passages, those three passages, one of, have nothing to do with spiritual warfare, for one. The context is not spiritual warfare at all. Yeah. In Matthew 12, Jesus is talking about church discipline. And he is, he is uh, simply talking about where um, the, we, the we, in the context of church discipline, have the power authority. Uh, no, no, sorry, that's not Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is the binding the strong man in connection with the unpardonable sin. Uh, so let's deal with it in order. Matthew 12 describes uh, Jesus' messianic claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus was simply so, saying and proving to the Pharisees that uh, the proof that he is the Messiah, the son of David, is the fact that he can come in and he can plunder Satan's goods. He can come in and deliver the captives out of Satan's dominion. He can he can um, exercise demons. He can save people. He can overcome sickness and illness. These are the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, the fact that he is the Messiah gives him the authority and the ability uh, and, and, and uh, to, to, to bind Satan and to basically see Satan's goods. So in that context, it's an analogy. It's not describing spiritual warfare or what we are to do or a prayer that we are to pray at all. Um, the second passage is Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, both of which deal with um, church discipline, where Jesus was saying that um, as, uh, as leaders within the church and as the church is, is representation of Christ on earth, that we have the authority to announce that which has been bound in heaven. So that which has been decreed or bound or, or um, issued in heaven so far, as it were, in terms of spiritual discipline, is that which shall be proclaimed or issue or bound on earth. So that, and then the encouragement to those who are doing church discipline is that when you announce to somebody, this person's sin, this person is living in unrepentant sins, his sins are not forgiven, and we're exercising church discipline on this person. Uh, when you do that, you have the authority of heaven behind you. That's the idea, mm-hmm. is that we're simply announcing what heaven's decree is in this situation. In none of those three contexts where the, the term binding and loosing are used, is it discussing spiritual warfare? No spiritual warfare experts want to want to talk about what loosening means. What does it mean to loosen Satan? And who's doing the loosening? And why is right. he being loosened? Has authority to loosen him? Yeah. And, and who keeps how long is he off? bound for? Exactly. Who keeps letting him out of the out of the cage? And how long is he bound for? And uh, so nobody wants to deal with those passages in their context. Those passages, mm-hmm. rightly interpreted in their context, have nothing to do with spiritual warfare. Full stop. Period. End of sentence. Yep. Nothing at all. It's not yeah, teaching the, spiritual warfare. The binding and, and loosening is a is a passage about legalism and antinomianism. So if it's bound, uh, it's not legalistic to 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 command people in your church that you gotta you gotta stick to this rule. And if it's loose, right. then you bind. We it. are bound by heaven. We're bound by heaven to do that. Right. But whereas if it's right. loosed, you're free to do it. You've got freedom in Christ to go do this thing. And if I bind you when heaven has loosed it, that's 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 legalism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh. Um, so the next step after binding Satan is then rebuking Satan. Yeah, so you'll hear a lot of people say this, I rebuke you, G- uh, Satan, in the name of Jesus. And they always got to attack the name of Jesus on it because they don't want to rebuke him in their own name. <laughs> uh, Robert Tilton used to do this all the time. You, I mean, you turn on TBN and, and you're likely to... You, you could flip a coin to figure out what you're going to hear first, a, 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 an appeal for money 
or somebody binding Sigma? <laughs> which which one are you likely to heal? Take bets on which one's going to come money. out here. They I'm do this all the, the time on TPM. What's that? I'm going with the money. But <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so rebuking the devil is, you know, you'll hear false teachers say this, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you, demon of alcoholism. I rebuke you, demon of lust. I rebuke you, demon of gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Tilton referred to demons of nicotine and and cigarettes, cancer, and all of this. So that's their way of rebuking. And, and supposedly, according to spiritual warfare experts, when when we rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus, uh, Satan is supposed to run with his forked tail between his legs uh, off into a corner somewhere and start sucking his thumb because uh, we have this authority that we've exercised in Jesus' name. And so yeah. he has to he has to stand uh, somewhat sulken and sullen and reproved because we've rebuked him. Yeah. And the flip side of that whole legal nowhere, rights thing. Yeah, the scripture nowhere teaches that we are to bind or rebuke Satan. And in fact, in Jude and Second Peter both, they warn against false teachers who think nothing of reproving angelic authorities. That's one of the marks of a false teacher. So you turn on TV and you see Kenneth Copeland or Mars Sorello or Jesse Duplantis or Robert Tilton rebuking the devil. That is the mark of people who, in their pride and arrogance, think that they have authority over Satan to rebuke him. Mm-hmm. And I think it is Jude who says, yep. uh, even the Michael, Ar- Michael the archangel did not think himself having an authority to reprove the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, even, even yeah. Michael himself, the highest of God's archangels, would not rebuke the devil. And so what ty- only a false teacher would think, well, where angels fear to tread, I'm going to run in. And I'm going I'm to jump in where angels mm-hmm. fear to tread. Um, so that's not patently a biblical practice that that uh, is not part of biblical spiritual warfare. Yeah, um, I knew that we could easily talk for more than two hours. <laughs> we're we're shooting for an hour here. We're probably about fifty minutes in. My timer says fifty four on the camera, but um, okay, we 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 didn't hit record right before we started, so a little less than that. But anyway, um, I I I don't want to. I think I think there's so much great stuff that's more towards the end that I don't want to miss out on. So okay. um, um, I'll leave the the reader to to look at uh, spiritual mapping and some of these other practices that you covered too. And um, I think that we've kind of talked about a little bit too in that legal right thing and yeah. territorial yeah. and and whatnot. And um, sorry, I'm just looking at. I got the my my copy of your book is on Kindle, so. That's why I'm looking like I'm, I'm not texting my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the yeah, book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is something I think is a really good topic is, and that's chapter 10. You talk about, can a Christian be demon possessed? Yeah. No, nope. the answer to that is no. <laughs> okay. On to chapter 11. <laughs> That's right. No, a Christian cannot be demon possessed because scripture teaches we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been set free from Satan and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so we become new creatures in Jesus Christ as sons of God. The devil cannot possess us. And so therefore, uh, any Christian who says they're demon possessed is either admitting that they don't understand demon possession or they are not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so no, Christians cannot be <laughs> demon possessed because, uh, and there's no example of, in scripture of a Christian being demon possessed. How, sure. how false teachers usually or I should say spiritual warfare experts, how spiritual warfare experts usually um, justify that teaching that a demon can be demon, a Christian can be demon possessed is to to try and say that the word um, 
demonized in the New Testament is this wide range of demonic activity and influence from actual possession to, um, on the one hand, or just sort of a demonic influence or effect or kind of deception on the other hand. And so by, by saying all of that is what it means to be demonized, therefore a Christian can be demonized. And so they blur the line between just the devil deceiving me and the devil possessing me in order to make the case that a Christian can be demon-possessed and they can be subject to actual control of demon. But uh, that's, a, that's an abuse of the word demonized in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when, when Scripture uses the term demonized in the New Testament, it's always referring to only one thing, and that is inward dwelling and control by an evil spirit. There's no example or teaching in the New Testament about how a Christian can get demonized or become demonized or how they can become undemonized. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the New Testament epistles are silent on the subject of how to get a demon out of a Christian, silent on that subject. And if it were possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed, you would think that Paul had said something to the Christians in the church in Corinth, because if anybody was demon-possessed, they were. Mm-hmm. Um, you would think, according to spiritual warfare experts, but there, there's nothing in the New Testament written to how Christians are to be exercised with demons. So Christians cannot be demon-possessed, and all the examples— all the examples that spiritual warfare experts would point to, notwithstanding, and I deal with some of those in the book, the, the, the woman in the uh, Gospel of Luke, uh, Judas Iscariot, Saul uh, in the Old Testament, King Saul, um, and Peter. They point to Peter sometimes when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And uh, I, I kind of deal with all of those examples in the book and whether or not they were really true Christians in some set cases or whether it was really true demon possession in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I want to... What, I, what I'd like to do is um, I want to leave some room for the reader. I, I do want to encourage people to get the book. And, and if we cover 100% of it, then people might think, why bother, right? Right. Um, I appreciate that. Not only uh, because it's it's great, but I think once it's on your shelf, it, it'll be a good service to people who are um, really need to read it that might not ever hear about it otherwise. So, um so I want to leave kind of the remainder of the show to just, I just want to toss it up to you. What else um, might you want to talk about before we close? And then um, I also, I don't want to forget that um, you sent me a, a few copies of the book to give away too. So uh, I want to oh, talk yeah. a little bit about yeah. the the giveaway. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to do for a giveaway? Um, well, I, I just like hearing from readers. So, you know, it's a monthly show. So this is the October episode. It'll be, you know, probably today. We're recording on October 6th. By the time I get it edited and posted, it'll probably be, uh, it'll be a few more days. We'll be a third of the way through October. But if you just contact me by the end of the month, um, I'll just do a drawing. You know, one way or another, you go to the echozoe.com slash contact or click on one of the uh, uh, social media links and uh, just say, hey, I'd like to, to be in the, the drawing for the book and, and uh, I'll put you in the drawing, but, uh, and, and I'm sorry, I don't, you, you sent them. I haven't received them yet. How many copies do we? Uh, I sent you, I think I sent you f- five copies if memory serves. Okay. Um, I, I think I sent you five copies to give away cause you said you had a copy on Kindle, so yep, you can I keep a copy it. if you want, but, I, um, yeah, I sent you five, I sent you five print copies and, uh, then I also sent you a copy of each of my other two books for you to read and enjoy um, physical copies of Prosperity of the Wicked, which is a study of Psalm 73, and Selling the Stairway to Heaven, which is a it's a book dealing with all the supposed heaven visitations. Like yeah. so, you've heard of 
uh, Colton Burpo, who says he was you know, four years old, had a surgery and went to heaven and sat on Jesus's lap while Jesus uh, sat next to his multicolored uh, horse and and he helped Colton do his homework. And then um, there's that book. And then there's 90 Minutes in Heaven with Don Piper, who actually never went to heaven. He says he was outside the gates of heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know why he called it 90 Minutes in Heaven. It should have been 90 Minutes just outside the gates of heaven. <laughs> and and then a book by Eben Alexander called Proof of Heaven, where uh, Eben Alexander, who's not even a Christian, claims that he had a near-death experience. He had uh, meningitis, and he was in a coma for a period of time. And he describes his encounter with the afterlife of the spiritual realm. And it, of course, is nothing like Colton Burpa or or um, John Piper, and but it's John an Piper. unbeliever. He's a he's a patent unbeliever who who describes his own encounter with the afterlife, and, mm-hmm. and I include that in the book simply to show as I as I contrast the difference between Burpo's account and, and uh, Piper's account. I included the account of a non-Christian simply to show that as Christians are willing to embrace almost any and promote almost any. Um, trip to heaven, account of a trip to heaven, or to prove their worldview. Here you have an unbeliever who says he has gone to heaven, and it's completely unbiblical. And his approach to God and his idea of God is completely unbiblical. And yet he had this very real, genuine experience. So Christian, if you're going to abandon the belief in the sufficiency of Scripture as proof for the afterlife, and you're going to embrace or include along with this Don Piper and Colton Burpo's accounts of heaven— then on what basis do you reject this other man who had a very real spiritual experience, very detailed spiritual experience? Well, he was in many ways like Colton Burpo and Don Piper, supposedly dead or at least comatose for a period mm-hmm. of time. Um, why do you embrace one and reject the other? And so that's the book Selling the Stairway to Heaven deals with that. And so I sent you a copy of each of those two books and then five books to give away if you want to give away all five of them. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that's it. I just that simple. So uh, tweet me. You can tweet if you've got my either Echo Zoe account at Echo Zoe or my personal account at AVG Andy, Average Andy. Um, Facebook, I'm not on Facebook very often, but before I do the drawing, I'll check Facebook and see who might have Perfect. left something there. I got to go. Th- I, I, I locked down my own Facebook account. I disabled it, but I, I go in through my wife's account and handle the Echo Zoe stuff. And, and so. I would encourage your listeners and, and uh, watchers that if you're confused on spiritual warfare, some of this is a bit murky to you uh contact andy so you can have a shot at getting the book i'm, I'm happy to get them yeah. to you and i'm glad he could do that. and so uh, contact him reach out and get in that drawing and and uh hopefully you win so if you're confused about it yep. or if your name is not andrew rapaport uh, you're eligible <laughs> to, to win the book yeah good point i I, I am gonna be given. disqualify andrew and uh and fred too because i think fred's probably read the book right Fred's Perfect. the one that said, hey, you should read it. So, uh, But the difference is that I like Fred. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a good point. So, Just don't give a book to Andrew. He hasn't <laughs> read the copy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I actually, based on the, the book giveaways I've done in the past and, and the, you know, just contact me as far as getting into the, the drawing, I think five copies, you got a pretty good chance. So go ahead if you want a copy. Um, just contact me one way or the other and, um, and I'll put you in the drawing and, and I tell you what, you you got a very good chance that you'll get the book, but, uh, so thank you very much for providing those. Um, you're very welcome. Is there anything you want to throw in before we close? Anything we might not have covered or do you think is important or, or anything off topic? Um, You know, I'll give you a preview of some other things that would be in the book. We also deal with how spiritual warfare connects to our sanctification 
Mm-hmm. And what is the true teaching of Ephesians chapter six? What is the armor of God? And yes. how is it to be put on? And, and what does it mean? And and those things are key uh, aspects in understanding it. And so you might think that a book on spiritual warfare would start with Ephesians chapter six, but I don't. I end with Ephesians chapter six because mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter six is the conclusion to the book of Ephesians. And I make it the conclusion to my own book because it belongs as the conclusion, not as the groundwork at the beginning. So um, I tie all of that together. I tried to lay out the book in a real logical, forward way. Uh, it's not technical. It's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. I think that, you know, even I've got teenagers who have read it and appreciate it and understand it. It's not a highly technical book. I hope it is a blessing mm-hmm. to any and all who pick it up and read it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up the Ephesians 6 because I, I, I really enjoyed that part too. And uh, that's, that was good. I, I liked your strategy too, putting it at the end. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, well, Jim, I am very, very thankful not only for writing the book and for coming on with me. I thank you for the copies of the book for the for the listeners who might be interested in in receiving one. And um, so, just all around, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the exposure and the opportunity to talk to your audience. It's much appreciated. Yeah. May God increase the the reach of your ministry. Thank you. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. Well, that wraps up episode 138. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 138. Be sure to check out the website also for links to connect with Echo Zoe on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube and love to connect with you. So follow, like, and subscribe to Echo Zoe Ministries. And don't forget the book giveaway as well. You can contact me through any of those sites as well as email. Uh, Help us also get the word out by sharing or retweeting your favorite uh, announcements for your favorite episodes. And then... uh, also, as uh, is tradition for the October episodes of Echo Zoe Radio, in honor of the 502nd anniversary of the start of the Reformation, we'll close the show with the Reformation polka. Currently on the agenda is to talk to Alan Nelson next month about his book on the holiness of God entitled Before the Throne, because the the episode is already in the plan, and um, I already talked to Alan about doing it. It should be up early in the month, and hopefully we'll be getting back on track for getting episodes up pretty early in the month, um, beginning next month. So, Lord willing, we'll be back next month for that show for the November episode of Zoe Radio. I study canon law, though earth was a challenge, was just to please my paw. Then came a storm, the lightning struck, I called upon St. Anne. I shaved my head, I took my vows in Augustinian. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. The papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. When Tetzel came here with the St. Peter's prophet's sword, so I wrote a little message for the All Saints Bulletin Board. You cannot purchase merit for we're justified by grace. Here's 95 more reasons, Brother Tetzel, in your face. 
Oh, papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. They love my tracks, adored mine with all were exemplar or. The Pope, however, hauled me up before the Emperor. Are these your books? Do you recant? King Charles did demand. I will not change my diet, sir. God help me, here I stand. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Duke Frederick took the wise approach, responding to my words. By knighting George's hostage in the kingdom of the birds. Use Brother Martin's model if the languages you seek. Stay locked inside a castle with your Hebrew and your Greek. Oh, papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Now let's raise our steins and concord books together in this place and spread the word that Catholic is spelled with lowercase. The word remains unfettered when the spirit gets her chance. So come on, Katie, drop your lute and join us in our dance. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation.